Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Journey Through Time and Stuff. My name is Aaron, and uh, today I'm just going to stay Aaron. Usually I try and give myself a nickname, but I'm feeling a little more professional today, um, and we're just going to go with that. So I I am proud to be able to say that this is my favorite podcast I'm ever going to have and recorded. Um, I've been doing this now for three and a half years, which to me is a long time, but to present company is a a good, a good modest try. Um, this is somebody I discovered in 2012 um, as a young man just exploring the ideas of what it means to be a person and uh, discovering philosophy, discovering uh, what contradictory thoughts mean to hold them both in your heads at the same time, what it's like to uh, dis- discover that you were born into an idea that wasn't the best idea. And uh, the person I'm about to introduce helped me discover that there are more than one way to think. There was an approach to take that, uh, as he will <laughs> undoubtedly describe, uh, a Zen approach to life. Um, and this is the funnest part for me to say, he is the savage philosopher. He is the mid- middle finger of the gods. <laughs> Daniele Bolelli. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much, my man. <laughs> yes. How are you? Good, man. Um, apologies to, um, you know, we we're supposed to record 20 minutes ago and I screwed up. So sorry about that. No, no problem at all. I opened my email. I was like, are we still out? I'm like, oops. <laughs> and write that down that sucks well you know it's it, it i feel you know very honored because you're a de- you're a, you're a busy guy i know you have a lot going on uh with all your own passion projects and everything like that so it's just to even have the time uh late is better than never i have to say <laughs> thank you so much and my pleasure um, thank you for it of course of course so you know i want to start first um by saying you you have one of the greatest authentic seeming personalities of anybody out there kind of uh, giving out content that that is relatable. Everybody else who's kind of pushing forward thinking content has a big platform because of, uh, you know, almost starting at a place of not having that platform. And to me, I see you as someone who had all of this thought and did all of the precognitive work ahead of time. And then you just happened to stumble into also being famous. How, how is yeah. that? Uh, it's a strange gig. Cause for the longest time, I always thought that like my number one passion um, was, and still is in some way writing as a means yes. of expressing myself. And in fact, I want to go back to doing that more, but then, you know, I realize. For one, writing is a strange beast because uh, the publishing industry is a mess and it's becoming worse by the minute. People are reading less. Um, And in the middle of all this, I just stumbled in podcasting. And I mean, really stumbled. Like I had, it actually came because of a book I wrote. And the first thing that happened was uh, Matt Staggs was doing the um, first time ever that I had a publicist, not because I had it, but because the publishing company hired him. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, first month, Matt is like, okay, I got you on two podcasts. I'm like, I'm not even sure what podcasts are, but sure, that sounds good. And it's like, it's Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan. And I was like, <laughs> well, you know, I know that I know who they are. Yeah. And so my intro into podcasting was just a deep dive into the deepest possible end of the pool ever. Sure. And I literally did not know what podcasts were. That was back 2011. It yeah. was kind of like, I remember Brian Redman telling me, yeah, it's kind of like radio, but you can cast. And I was like, okay, cool. That works. Perfect. And uh, so in an odd kind of way, it's worked out that way. And then, uh, you know, I started paying off for me in a good way because I started realizing, yeah. hey, there's a, this is a cool medium. This, there's something I can do with it. Right. There's... Um, it's not what I thought I was going to do, but it works. And it doesn't prevent me from ex still exploring other venues, but it's just, uh, it's a cool other scene that I would have never really anticipated before. Sure, sure. Well, so that, that brings up kind of an interesting question for me as as such a fan of yours. Um, in in 2011, you go on Rogan for the first time, you do Corolla, you you know, your, your book is really marketing and doing quite well. Um, and... You you hadn't written uh, Fear, the, your 2015 book. Which one was that? No, I that one was Not Afraid. Not Afraid, and, yes, uh, Not Afraid. Actually, I hadn't even done uh, Create Your Own Religion yet. I mean, I think I just but wrote you, you it. Had just, you had just done 50 Things You Must Know, right? Yeah, which is funny because that one was a book that I didn't want to write. <laughs> you know, the one that I first wrote was On the Warrior's Path. Yes. That one was, you know, my book. Yes. Then I was teaching Create Your Own Religion. And the publishing company was like, you know, we have this series about we have this series that we do fifty things you're not supposed to know about. Why don't we do one about religion? And I was like, wait, what? You want me to write like fifty funny stories about religion? It's like I don't care. That's really not what I want to do. Right. But they were like, look, we do this one, then we do create your own religion, the one that you want to work on. So just get it done. And I was like, okay, not my idea, but sure. And then the one thing, the one thing I thought wasn't going to be anything for me is the one who then put me in touch with this whole other world of podcast. Yeah, yeah, I was wow. like, didn't see that coming, but that works. Well, well, and so, so you, you at this point are really just wanting to be an author. You're, you just want to keep writing. Um, you're also, yep. you're also teaching at that point, right? Comparative history and American in studies, American Indian studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been teaching since uh, almost 20 years now. I think wow. 2001 is when I began teaching in college. And so I, yeah, it's been a while. And and that too was one of the reasons why, you know, it's like, oh, I want to write, but I have to teach 32 zillion classes just to pay the bills. Right. And, you know, so there were always, it's always good stuff, but it wasn't like what I wanted to do. So when you were, when you were a young man then, uh, you grew up in Milan. Uh -huh. Um, uh, d did you, obviously you, you've talked about your, your passion for writing at that time was teaching also in that mix, or did you just stumble in that because of the fascination with history and anthropology? Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, one thing that I noticed growing up is like my dad has always been a writer, a philosopher, this, that, and, you know, I love the freedom and the fact that he did what he wanted all his life. But I also didn't like that it was always one of those, uh, oh, we don't know how we're going to pay rent next month. And it's like, oh, shit. You know, yeah. there was always that. I found it, he managed to navigate through it perfectly. Right. I found it a little stressful. Oh, yeah. So I was like, 
how about I tone that down just a tiny bit? I still do some of the stuff I want to do, but I have something, some kind of a job that at least keeps my ass cover for when rent is due. Yeah. And that way it's not a complete sellout job, but it's something that, you know, I'm, it's a job. I'm doing it because they pay me, but hopefully it's something that I can also enjoy doing it for the most part. Right. And so as I was going through various options, teaching seemed to fit the bill. I was like, you know what? I could teach college where in terms of hours of the week, it really doesn't take as many hours as teaching grade school or something or high school. Of course. It's, uh, I deal with adults so I can be a little freer talking about any subject I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, and words, words, out. and words kind of aren't as much as of an, of an, an, an inhibitance, right? Yeah. So I was like, you know, this could work out for me. And then, you know, one of the things I was doing in college just was a part-time job. I was, uh, I was tutoring. And so in tutoring, you're kind of teaching, but in a small setting, like yeah. two to five people kind of thing. So it was like having mini classes and, you know, and, and having fun with it. I realized I'm actually kind of good at this. I, I can do it well. People like it. I, I get to, it's, it's a way of expressing myself. It's a way of putting a little bit of my personality into something. And then right. it's helping these guys as well. It's not a bad gig. And so eventually I was like, you know what? Teaching part-time could be, could be a good thing could be kind of the baseline that allowed me to pay the bills while doing something for the most part fun. Yeah. And, um, and then I can always carve the time for my other stuff in this sure, way. Sure. Sure. Um, that's, you know, you, you, br you brought up something funny, which I think, uh, I, I, I relate very much well to, um, having a, a, a father who is a writer and a philosopher and kind of mm -hmm. a free, a free spirit person. Um, d you know, I had parents that were musicians. And so mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, in the creative side and kind of, you know, the caring about the passion of doing that love more than necessarily where the money comes from um, mm -hmm. was stressful. But I also found that it made me, you know, and I wonder if it's the same for you. Are you able now as, a, as you know, an adult or even, you know, within the last 20 years, able to kind of separate your wants from half halves? Like, you know, you want to be a, a writer and a creator and do all these, these things. And does that push for the passion still kind of outweigh the need for monetary gain? Or I mean, you know, it's that's where I think a healthy balance makes sense. It's like, because ultimately, if you go for your passions, but you're stressing out because you right. can't pay bills, your passion may not be passions, but much longer. Because by now, you just sure. look at them like damn it, why can't it work? Why am I not making money? Why this? Why yeah. that? And then you hate it and it's no longer a passion. At the same time, if you give that up just because you want to make some money, that's terrible for who you are as a human being. Yeah. So finding some way to do stuff that cover, you know, that allow you to be comfortable with whatever your material needs are. And clearly the least for material needs, the easier it is to get there, of course. But, you know, that's, that's up to each individual, you know, right. everybody's standards of what they are comfortable with. But right. if you can find whatever it is, the thing that you are comfortable with, something that doesn't require killing your souls to meet them. Yes. And, you know, if it happens to be your passion, you just won the lottery. But yeah. if it's something <laughs> vaguely related to your passion, 
then you're not in bad shape. You know, yeah. then it's like, okay, these we can work with this. Yeah, yeah. I, then, I guess the person who wins that that intellectual lottery of finding uh, sitting in a cubicle entirely compelling. Uh, mm -hmm. probably doesn't focus on too much about what matters for them in happiness anyway, right? I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't, I don't think you can objectively look uh, and take a utilitarianist kind of view and say the cubicle life is actually the happiest life. I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, I think, one of, that's a very interesting topic that you bring up because I think the reality is that most people, and I mean it with no judgment whatsoever, of course, of course. most people include most of us at least at one point or another in our lives, yeah. it's not all of our lives. Most people have no fucking idea how to make themselves happy. And so they are chasing some, like, it's like, I don't know what really makes me happy, so I'm just gonna do the stuff i don't know i hear that these people they look they buy cool stuff and then they smile on tv after they buy the cool stuff so maybe that's the way to go mm -hmm. or maybe you know i need to be responsible i can be a bum so i should get a job and turns out this job is killing my soul but what else can i do you know i don't know what it is that doesn't kill my soul i don't know what it is that would make me wake up with a smile every day right and yeah. i think there's that's a big problem you yeah. know if you don't know how to make yourself happy and again it's not a fault it's like when you live in a society where the majority of people don't know how to make themselves happy it's kind of hard to find good role models so do you where do you think then okay do you think that the the inability to discover where one's happiness truly comes from it, do you think that's kind of an, an intrinsic byproduct of, of us evolving as the societal hierarchy that we have? Or do you think that's something that once was obtained? Like, do you ever see that ability being more prevalent and us having lost it? Or do you think it's always been a struggle? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell because, uh, you know, history is good at recording, you know, big events. He's not always the best getting into the people's psychology. Sure. So the brain we have is the same brain we have had from the last whatever many tens of thousands of years. Right. So that doesn't change. But of right. course, the circumstances do change. And those can have an impact on people's happiness or lack of thereof. So it's very hard to tell. It's easy to both romanticize it or paint it into mm. negative of a light. Um, I wish I knew. I, I don't really know that I that I can have an answer to that. Okay. Sorry, I was getting a little echo happening. Um, so I, I wonder then, you know, because for me, if, if I was to try and, and be a little uh, objective and look back, I would say I couldn't imagine a, uh, you know, early human 10, 15,000 years ago um, worrying about happiness in the same way that happiness means to us now. Sure. You know, I mean, you obviously spent, you had a lot less time to sit and wonder. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's something even interesting about that aspect. The fact that realistically, sometimes having it too easy is not good for your mental health in the sense that when you don't worry about the things that are basics in life, you know, your food, yeah. your water, your this, your that, it's terrible when you have to worry about it. But it's also in some way terrible when you don't have to worry about it. Because at least when you are focused on those essential things, when you get them, you're happy. When you, yes. you know, you have a very clear goal, you have a very clear 
the human mind doesn't seem to do incredibly well when it doesn't have clear-cut goals in front of it. It's it just yeah. like, that's why people, it seems so weird to understand for most people because it's like we all are, you know, struggling in our own way and then to see somebody who has $20 million and six villas in Hawaii was like, <laughs> oh, you know, life is so hard and kill myself is like what are you fucking kidding me that you have it easy but but the fact that it's so prevalent tells you that maybe it's not that easy right maybe i mean of course it's a paradoxical because it is easy from a practical circumstances but if these people haven't learned how to make themselves happy along the way having no limits in some way material in the sense that they can afford things that most other people can't or, in some way, show them even more how fucked up they are. Yeah. Because somebody has the illusion that, like, oh, I'm struggling because I have these problems, but if only I could get to this place. And so it kind of keeps it in check because you have a mission. You know, you're on track for that mission. Yeah. But same. when you get there and you feel just as crappy as before, now we got a problem, right? Now it's like, oh, man, then it's inside of me. Yes, of course, of course. Essentially, then, we've kind of been sold a false bill of goods uh from the get go you know i can i can even harken back to being a uh you know in second and third grade uh and be, you know sorry <laughs> oh, no. uh being being from kind of a poor family um mm -hmm. recognizing that even at that young uh Friends were made by the stuff they wore and the cleanliness of their shoes. And uh, there was already, and you know, this is in, when I'm that young, this is in the early 90s. And, you know, mm -hmm. the internet wasn't a thing yet. Video games, I mean, you maybe had a Super Nintendo, but you didn't know that. Like, people weren't carrying around handheld cell phones and you could see the value. Sure. And But it really was back then, and I internalized it hard at a young age, that wow, it seems for some of these kids who come to school and they make friends with the other kids who dress like them, they mm -hmm. seem to be happier. But, yeah, but they weren't. I mean, but looking yeah, back... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you deal with that when as, as a kid in, in Italy as well? Or was, was that, did you notice kind of a, a, a... Was there a wealth disparity thing that made classism a part of your childhood? There was, but there was also a very strong, uh, I don't know why when I think about it, but there was also a very strong uh, anti-rich vibe where I grew up. So in some way, there was this thing where if you had the money, well, I never had that problem, but yeah, for the kids yeah. who did have the money, uh, they tried to keep it a little on the down low a little because mm. it wasn't something i mean on one end it was like the cool thing for them but then there was also a lot of like you privileged little shit type of vibe and so many kept it in check uh because it wasn't always well received ah okay interesting um so i i, I guess actually, oh sorry even like even at school like there was also a vibe where if you did too well at school was almost like what's your problem you know it's oh. like you nerd so so the so, the stereotype of the straight a college bound student um and achieving that 4.0 actually was almost at the top end of welcomed yeah even that was weird like that was also seen uh like there was a strange vibe where you did not want to stand out ah. for 
the standard reasons for being successful in the standard ways, for having money, for doing too well in school. You didn't want to do too bad in school either. Of course. Because that carried its own problems and you are a fuck up. But you didn't want to do too well because you were like a little too well adjusted to a system that nobody liked. Wow. So it was uh, kind of a strange vibe in it. Okay. Well, that that actually, I, I guess, brings me to another uh, interesting kind of, I almost see it as a paradox. Um, d- you growing up that way, uh, one, you must have been kind of shocked when you come and move to America and seeing what our school system and how it's uh, compromise, uh, how people are compensated for the type of views we have, which obviously are anti- an-, an antithesis to your views. Uh, sure. And then, but also, you know, now you're a father as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is it tough, kind of broaching the difference? between how you were raised and how you viewed going to school and now how you're having to manage teaching a kid, your daughter, to handle the new school, like handle how school is today. You don't have a reference point for it. You know, like, how do you broach that? Because it almost seems like they cancel each their... Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is a school is... um... Like any institution, is not going to deliver something exceptional and it's not going to help you become an amazing human being. No. But it doesn't mean it all sucks. So my thing is just like, hey, make it work. Do what needs to be done as well as you can in a way so that it doesn't, you don't have to stress about crap. You don't, you know, your teacher is nice enough, make her happy, whatever. Yeah. But then we understand each other that real stuff, like real education, is happening somewhere else. So, you know, it's a good game. You learn how to jump through the hoops. Mm. Better learn to do it well rather than poorly, because if you do it poorly, then uh, then you have to worry about it, and you have to stress, and you have to all these other things. Instead, if you learn how to do it well, you get it done fast, boom, and then you have the rest of your day for you, and you don't have to think twice about it. Yeah. But of course, we understand that doing well is not a mark of uh, that doesn't make you special that just you learn how to jump through hoops right congratulations right it's, it's, it's mad at, you know. yeah i guess i guess you know something that i realized later in life and honestly it was uh after reading the war on the warrior's path and then not afraid um those are the mm-hmm. two of your books that i've read um not afraid helped me a lot even though i'm not a, a dad or a father you know i don't have any kids mm-hmm. um dealing with loss shortly Shortly before that, I had dealt with some, and um, and it's funny. It was it wasn't the kind that you know most people. I don't know if they can relate, but I moved. I left Alaska to move to Oregon to form a band. I did kind of the, the thing where I was in a situation where I wasn't truly. I didn't feel like myself was being. I did, I wasn't being true enough to me, but with mm-hmm. a job I had in a place I didn't like. You know, it was my hometown. It it felt very constricted and contrived. And I, you know, there I, I needed out. And also I wanted to do a passion. So I figured the best way is just pluck everything that mattered and move it away, right? Mm-hmm. And right. Sh- shortly after that, um, once life kind of hit everybody, you know, we were all young 20-year-old men. We move here. And uh, shortly enough, you, we realized the character of the person who was here without everything that made them comfortable home. Right. And, of course. and then it inevitably falls apart and you, you know, friends move back, you lose friends, you stop talking and, you know, and also, you know, it's hard to not view that as an internal problem in yourself. And that was also something right. that I, I 
realized in this point and reading some of your stuff and also listening to you know people talking about loss like duncan and um chris uh uh oh man why can't i blowing i'm forgetting his last ryan chris ryan sorry um yeah 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 um you know listening to i mean i know duncan had the old podcast with his mom and stuff what was chris thing um oh well actually it was um he had written sex at dawn yeah. And then he was doing um his podcast um um oh I am so skipping on his the, his podcast name right now. Um uh, tangentially speaking. Yes, yes, tangentially. Thank you. Thank you. No worries. Um yeah, and you know, I'd heard him come on um Rogan's a few times and just talking away of um, you know, uh he he talked a lot about uh, um, you know, him being kind of a traveler and, and, and running around through all of his 20s and searching for this thing that he wanted and, and getting in lots of weird situations and traveling for love. And it turns out that wasn't something that mattered to him. It was something that he thought would complete the part of him he thought was empty, right? And and in that same way, yeah. I, you know, and you alluded to this, just talking about school, the how well you do in school or how well you make friends is only actually how well you can jump through those hoops. It's not intrinsic to your meaning. You mean mm-hmm. what you mean, regardless of how others view your achievements. And and so, you know, that was something that it took me into my late 20s before yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm 33 now, and it took me well into my late 20s um, before I even understood that the stuff that I was judging myself on was looked through the other person's eyes that I thought I hurt. So it was, right. none of it was about me. It was all ego driven. Yeah. You, you know, I was afraid of being hurt in my ego, but I was afraid that I wasn't good enough for the people, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's strange. It's, um, yeah. And tough balance, right? Because if you are too easy on yourself and you're too willing to make apologies for your shortcomings then you never grow and you become a self-indulgent little shit yes but if you don't if you don't do it enough then you're way too hard on yourself and you're just beating yourself up for no reason where it's like dude yeah nobody's perfect relax a little you know Mm -hmm. don't be so damn harsh right right uh to appreciate the stuff that you do have and that you are here and now and that's important so it's a very fine line because most people tend to be one way or the other. They're yeah. either perfectionists to beat themselves up and they get a lot done, but they are impossible to be around. Or they are like lazy bastards who can, you know, smile and be happy, but, you know, play PlayStation 4 all day long. And that's so it. you just brought up, you brought up two, two hilarious things. One, you wrote a post the other day about um, realizing that your strive for perfection is actually a safeguard against getting work done yep i i I sit here in a room that i have made perfect for me being a musician a podcaster artist you know i have a table i can draw on i have my instruments lined up next to me here and yet i spend more time making the room look how i want it to look to create in it than actually doing the creating of course of course yeah Uh, and then the second thing is, I you so you just did something which I am jealous about is you cared for yourself a little bit, um, mm-hmm. and you bought yourself a PS4. Yes, I, which is funny because the way I grew up, you, I never 
bought anything for myself, you know, just not something that was very, you know, every dollar you spend is uh, more time you have to spend doing something you don't like. So spend as little as humanly possible. And that's the way to go. And it's like, you know, and once in a while, just do something for yours. And again, that's a balancing, right? If you are the person who tends to go impulsive shopping every three minutes, it's like, no, you need a good dose of the opposite. Just stop. Don't do it. But if you are always in this self-denial mode, it's like, hey, man, just take a breather. Relax once in a while. Do something that's just purely fun. That's not for the hell of, you know, there's no other reason than just simple fun. So, so when you were in your thirties and you know, you've been teaching for a while, right at this point. Um, and did you, at that time when you were kind of, you know, things were getting better and you were writing your books or at least X kind of internally modeled that way you still at that time, how did you kind of get over caring about you? Cause obviously at this point you started needing some bigger and better things as utility, not just frivolousness. So kind of how, cause Cause I, I struggled the same thing. I have two pairs of shoes. Uh-huh. I I've had the same single bass guitar and the same acu- electric guitar f- as long as right. I've been playing music. Cause they still play work. Why, why sh- you know, I know friends yeah. who don't play half as much as I do and they have six or seven different guitars and, and I can't yeah. understand that need cause mine plays just fine. Um, yeah. yet I also can like, you know, this is harkening back to holding two different thoughts in your head at the same time that are competing. Um, I recognize that maybe it it would be, I would feel a little freer if I wasn't stuck to the one mechanical feeling of one guitar or like you, you know, a computer or uh, a writing station, or like you said, video games. So, uh, what do you think kind of started the progress and do you, are you, are you there yet? (laughs) I think what you're referring to that idea of duality, right? Yes. Where there are two opposite thoughts at the same time is that there are some cases where one option is really bad and one option is really good. Mm. Most cases are not like that. No. Most cases are each option as something that it can contribute to you, but it also, if you take it too far, is going to mess you up. Mm. And so a lot of the gig is, is not holding seemingly contradictory beliefs for whatever reason. It's because... They are not necessarily contradictory. It's about finding a balance between the two. They both have a medicine, and in both cases, that medicine can turn into poison if you take it too far. So it's like it's good to be not to spend too much, but it's also good to live a little, right? So ah, finding a yes. good balance, there, it's important. It's good to be self-indulgent to some degree, but if you do it too much, you're a lazy bastard. If you do it too little, you are this monk who's beating himself up because he doesn't work hard enough. Mm. Neither one is healthy, but a good spot in between those two is perfect, right? And that balance is tricky because it depends on who you are and how you grew up and your time in your life. It may shift a little, but there is a balance and, you know, there's a range there of that balance. And if you go too far one way or too far another, the balance is gone. And then you have to deal with the problems that come with it. So, for example, if you are a creative genius, but you spend all your time in this super ultra intense mood and you create amazing stuff, but you are a freak who's impossible to deal with on a human level for any other human being, you gain and you lose. You know what I mean? It's yes. like you created something amazing yes but you are 
fucking freak who can't have a decent relationship with anybody because you're crazy. Vice versa, if you are too normal, so to speak, and all you do is you're a pleasant person that people have good relationships with, that's great. But also maybe there's a fire there that you never got to express, and that's a Uh shame. But where's that line there? Where's that good sweet spot where you can have both? Where does it, I'm a big Yeah, where the, does it lie for you? It's constantly changing. That's part of the problem. And that's why it takes it takes little constant adjustments. You know, I always use the metaphor of surfing because surfing ah. is not a static thing. You don't get on the board and you go like, I'm gonna put my left foot 50% to the left, my right 50% to the right, and that will give me balance. Because the ocean is, con- the, that wave is constantly changing. Mm. So your balance constantly do those tiny little adjustments. Yes. And in some cases they are not even tiny. In some cases you have to go way to one side and then three seconds later you go way to the other. And it's an art. You know what I mean? It's not, mm. a, not a recipe that somebody can say, your balance should be at 63% leaning right. left with 37 right. No, it's constantly shifting. And the art is being able to recognize what's needed at any given time. Do you, do you feel like you have maybe a, uh, a, 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 a starting point, kind of mac, uh, an, a, a large back, pulled back view kind of prescription of for yourself, of course, of, you know, starting with 70% focus and kind of inward turned creativity and 30% of being this, and then all the adjustments happening from there. Do you think you start at 50-50 and have to, you know, because I... No, I think think your context in which you grow up and your own personality will shape you. So you're going to not be at 50-50. You may be 70-30 or even maybe 90-30. You know sure. what I mean? And it's like, that's your, those are the cards you are given. And those are the ones you start with. And then you figure out what's an ideal balance each, which may not be 50-50 at all. It may be 80-20, no. but right. still, would you get into that 80-20 range is the sweet spot. Okay. And if you are 90-10, well, then you know what you got to do. If you are 60-40, you know what you got to do. But that 80-20 is somewhere in the good range for you. Sure, sure. Um, and so is that kind of for you then where you take your kind of, you, you know, like you, like your podcast is the perfect, you know, it's the drunken Taoist pod, you know. So is that where you kind of take your your version of Taoism in that approach is is using it as kind of almost a, a, a baseline for na- the navigation? Yeah, because it's, and ultimately, life gives you the feedback, right? It either yes. works or it doesn't. Yes. You're either happy or you're not. You either make the people around you happy or you don't. They, if, yeah. uh, you can, I was going to say, they are, all, they are all kind of dichotomies broken down to that baseline. Yeah. yeah. And that feedback lets you know where you're at. You know, if uh, maybe to somebody else, that life looks perfect, but you're not happy. So clearly, that balance is not good for you. So you need to figure out what is that needs to be tweaked. Mm. And I think it, it, every now and then, even if you're played the card masterfully, you still need to tweak it. There's still something that needs adjustment. It's never a static thing. But, you know, if you know how to do it fairly well, that won't be, you'll recognize it early enough and you'll manage to do the adjustment and boom, there you are. Wow. Okay. Well, how? so uh, I kind of wonder then, uh, what got you in to some, like you said, your dad was a philosopher. 
or is still. Sure. Um, but did as a kid, did you naturally spend a lot of kind of existential time turned inward, big picture thinking? Were you did you find yourself yeah. caught up with some of these insane questions where you just they they almost take everything else away from you? You? Did, I mean, I was. You know, I grew up uh, before internet yeah. with crappy TV with three channels, and most of them there's like, hey, every three days there's half hour of programming that you actually want to watch. Right. And didn't have much money, so no computer games. Or, so you know, I grew up with not a whole lot of. Uh, I would. I was an only child. Okay. So I was by myself playing a fuckload of time. Right. It was just yes. a lot of. It was just me by myself sure. having to make stuff out of nothing to entertain myself. Mm. Stories and it's so a lot of it was imagination, right? And just and the rest of the time was a lot of time with like my dad or my mom or um just talking to them, you know, just long, long, long time chatting, talking, exploring ideas, and then a lot of time on my own, just running in my head, inventing games, inventing stuff to try to be entertained, not to be bored. So, you know, there's um, that's that kind of inevitably forces you to go in certain directions yeah. that are a little more creative in a very literal sense. Like you need to create your own entertainment because there is no pre-made entertainment handed yeah. to you. There just wasn't. All right. All right. So that brought off that, that definitely, uh, brought out you the writing you wanting to do that um sure. where did where did kind of the leaning toward uh, anthropology come in because i i assume you were raised secular yeah 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 i grew up in a very non-religious environment most of the people i knew actually like because i live in a big city and so in the big yeah. cities most people were not particularly religious gotcha when when, um, when were you kind of broached with some of the more, you know, cause in, in my house, you know, I, I was, I was raised by uh, a mom. My dad was, you know, not around for a lot of my, my, the, the very formative years, but by, by the time I was seven, yeah. he had moved out um, and always lived close, but it's difference between having a, a in the house yeah. and, you know, being around your mom most of the time. And, and um, sure. you know, my, my mom did, you know, it isn't a very uh, scientific science minded person just from uh, like you know, a base state of epistemology. There's not a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, there's not a lot of ease with unanswers. You know, um, to say yeah. I don't know is something that is characteristically hard for her. Um, right. You know, but yet at the same time, we would have the the, the dinner conversations of how much does an atom weigh and how much sure. you know reading big encyclopedias because we didn't have the internet either and yeah. um you know but at the same time she was raised religious uh and so there was this kind of also you know this is kind of where getting over this dualism is because there was you know we have a lot of things we need to go out and search for answers for but there's this one thing that is already answered for sure there's no sense in questioning because it's already answered um do is that kind of where the intrigue came for you? Is some people are so sure and then yet there isn't certainty? I'm yeah, and I think that was one of the things that I enjoyed in... Uh, like one thing that was very formative for me was that a vibe that I got from both my parents. And even though they split up very early, you know, mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with both of them. 
and both of them had this vibe where from a very early age I got this idea of being somewhat proud of my own weirdness and idiosyncrasies and ways in which I may not fit the mold and have this sense that of um, accepting and embracing not taking the normal path, not taking the normal answers there, you know, and just really thinking outside the box a lot. And, and I enjoyed the process too. It was entertaining. It was entertaining yeah. to think about, okay, this is what people argue. So why would there be a problem with it? Oh, because of this, this, and this. Oh yes. So this makes sense. Yes. But be careful because now that becomes its own trap, that line of thinking, if you take it too far or sure so look does. at it, there was this kind of dance back and forth with playing with ideas yeah. and realize their potential and their pitfalls. And I found it fun. You know, I found it fun. I would just chat with my dad a lot about these things and I, I found it very enjoyable. What, uh, what, what, what pushed you more into the American Native American Indian studies that, 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 you know, that, you... yeah, uh, who knows? I was into it since I was a tiny kid. Oh, so no even even being living in Italy, growing up there, you oh, were yeah. reading about the our you know American stuff here. I mean, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, it's as far as I can remember, pretty wow. much. I remember okay. like, barely learning to read and being into that and reading about kind of tribal life in the American West and stuff like that, and no idea why. Interesting. Kind of like a kid, uh, uh, another a different child would be fascinated with pirates or or whatever sure, it was. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. yeah, it was definitely a a big part of the way I grew up. Interesting, interesting. Um, well, you know, it, I I kind of also have wondered this. I've heard you talk so much about you know your history, and I I, I love history on fire. I mean, your yeah. the 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 couple episodes that stand out to me as kind of I would you know. The one I go back and listen to again is Ikkyo for one. Uh, yep. That series was amazing. Jack Johnson, that one yep. was amazing. And then you did a, the single episode, and I can't remember her name for the life of me, but she was the the pirate queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, uh, yeah, yes. she's uh, th- that's a creepy story right there. It is fascinating. Um, I kind of wonder how you do deal with your own epistemology. In like you said, there's. History is great at recording the big events, um, mm-hmm. but for all the subtleties, not so much. And with time and translation, it all gets lost. So how did you approach then once you started wanting to kind of solidify your own epistemology and, and how you come to know things? How do you go from you know compiling a History on Fire episode where there is so much kind of scattered ideas and oh. narrow it into your how you can come to think you know something or to the best that you can. Yeah, I think there's that good old uh, Bruce Lee approach, right? That idea of, uh, you know, kind of research what's out. You have to experience things, research what's out there. You have to look what the answers that other people have provided. Mm. And then you take a look at them and see what works and what doesn't. You know, you try things out for yourself. You see if it helps you, if it improves the quality of your life, if it's satisfying one way or another. You take the parts that work. You reject the parts that don't. And then you add something that comes from you. You know, your own, you know, as you adapt it to your personality, you, whatever it is that works, gets a personal flavor to it all. 
And I think that's a brilliant way of how just good science and good living and good art and good everything should work, right? It's like yes. you want to, you don't just make shit up, you research what's out there. You look at the answers other people have provided. You look at what that field they are into. What you know, you don't just decide uh, tomorrow. I know jujitsu because I decided. I know. It's like you need all the basics. You need to yeah. know. You do your homework. You know, there's no shortcuts there. And then you realize that a bunch of stuff either doesn't work or doesn't work for you. And so you kind of put it aside. And you start playing with the stuff that really works. Yes. And then you realize you have a special way of doing things that's a little different than other people, where you take those same basics, but you tweak them in a way that works for your body, for your mind, for the way you are mm. built. And so you add that extra layer. It's the same way as I do an episode, right? It's like I need to, first, I need to do the boring work. I need to research it, right? Yeah. I need to read whatever has been written on that topic as much as humanly possible. Then I start taking out all the things that make sense to me in that story, like all the key elements of that story. And, uh, you know, eventually you realize, oh, no, this was some weird interpretation by an author that doesn't work. This is something that wasn't proven. This is that stuff goes out. Yeah. The stuff that you keep, then you clean that outline until it really makes sense and you can tell a good story. And then when it really becomes a good story is when you put a personal element, like the way you tell it to a friend. So it's not just a dry academic lecture, but it becomes something more alive, it, something that you can, uh, you know. You nail it. You nail it absolutely perfectly. You you really do bring to life these characters. Um, I mean, even someone as, you know, as kind of famous as Joan of Arc, um, sure. you know, who, who has had so much written about her and so much documentation, you painted it in a way that I don't think her character was ever captured in a single movie that's been made about her. I mean, it it, it was fascinating. And that's actually what's fun about doing a podcast on this stuff is that, you know, if I had that same vision, but I had to make a movie out of it, if you get to be super successful, maybe you get to do like four or five of those movies in your life at best, right? Right. With a podcast, I can do seven or eight a year topics and more yeah. episodes, of course. Yeah. That's the topics alone. It's because you don't depend on, you don't, you don't need millions of dollars to put it on screen. You don't need, so you can kind of write your own movie in your head. Of course, it requires a little more imagination, but it's that. Yeah. It's that kind of process. And, um, and I enjoy it a lot. That's that's amazing. Um, and then, so do do you have a distinction that you make then between religiosity and spirituality? I mean, do you find do you find spir- do you find spirituality to be a tricky word? Yeah, I do. I think it's kind of like it's very easy to get trapped in semantics, and so it's kind of good to understand the way we use language. You know, yeah. it's like and I don't think there's a single meaning. So I, my thing in a conversation would be kind of like what do you mean by that you yes, know just yes. so that we understand that we're using words the same way once we understand because uh, otherwise so many discussions happen where one person is attaching one meaning to a word one person is attaching another and they completely talk past each other you know it's like yes socialism means you want the gulags and you are pro-stalin versus <laughs> socialism somebody who imagined denmark and it's like pretty <laughs> different things you know so yes, it's like, yes. it's the same word but it doesn't mean the same thing at all and so they can have this 
discussions that never end and getting all mad because they are not talking about the same stuff. Ah. So it's a wise idea to yeah. understand what people mean by those words. And spirituality is one of those. It can mean, can mean so many things that some of those I like, some of those I don't. It yeah. really depends on the specifics. Well, isn't that kind of the trap with a lot of, a lot of the words that tie more to an idea than a, su- a substantive thing? Um, you know, a, a, a lot of the, the language that there's not ambiguity in is language that we can touch. You know, it's a word describing a thing that actually exists. You know, a can't, yep. my beer is my beer. And if yep. you may have a, a slightly different variation, but it's actually something we can talk about. If you're, if you're being as ambiguous as spirituality, well, yeah, you know, two people can have two meaning, different meanings, and you can work together and try and come to a common ground. And maybe you even have to no longer call it spirituality. The thing that you're actually both talking about sure. is herbitagerb or, you know, some some randomness. Yeah. Um, but even then, once you guys have kind of come down to something, you're really just talking about, and I, you're talking about something that's non-substantial. It's... Yeah. Huh. That's why words are tricky. And, you know, we use them where human, it's fun. It's cool to play with words. As sure. long as we understand that they are tricky, that yeah. they are a symbolic game trying to describe something that's entirely beyond words. Yes. Because life, real life, is it exists in a place where words don't apply. Yeah. But yeah. words are cool, cool. They may help us. But in plenty of times, it just takes us astray and make us mistake, you know, the the actual food for the menu or vice versa mm, is the, like the, the one is the, the description of that thing one is the real deal and yes. it's so yeah we're, there's a in Taoism they hammer on the concept over and over again like the very first line of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that can be explained is not the eternal one meaning you know if you can talk about it uh, it's not the real thing ah. but then like they also go in but then he writes a whole book about it so obviously it's paradoxical. He's saying, look, as long as we understand that words are limited and it's very easy to misunderstand them, then let's use them by all means. But let's be clear that it's tricky business. Like Chuan's was this line, uh, where can I find a man who has forgotten words so that I can have a word with him? You know, and it's a joke, of course, but there's that idea of like, look, as long as we both understand that words are not the real experience, right. by all means, let's play with words. Yes, but so often people get stuck into these semantic battles that have no relation with reality. Yeah, that's why social media sometimes is terrible as people argue back and forth on shit. That is like, look, take a walk in nature; it's healthier. You yes. know, eat food, smile to the stranger, relax, get, go back to basic. Have Just sex with your have sex with your loved one. Yeah, that's you know considerably. There's something very real about it that no amount of political and philosophical discussions will ever have. Yes. So once you're in touch with those things, then the discussion may flow in a healthier way. Right. But so often people get lost in words are words are very easy to get lost into. Sure. And sure. so it's important to remember what it is that we why we're using them, what and- we're using them for. And at the same time, you know, once you're on this page of 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 figuring out, you're you're both playing this game with words that are 
primarily intangible things. Now let's now let's move to the the the, the idea to ideas themselves, right? So the words are just our sandbox for the walls of this, which is the idea we're playing in. Um, yep. The next, I guess, trap that I find a lot that that I end up having with people is now, all right, we're both playing this game with words. We understand we're playing a game. The idea, mm-hmm. the idea then gets really internalized as so once you start picking apart an idea, the people feel that you're picking them apart. Mm-hmm. How do you then broach that and tr- and try and explain to the person, you're not your ideas. Like your ideas is something that you could let go of. You obviously at one point didn't have that idea. So you were able to sure. start it. And now, you know, it's, it doesn't automatically become you. How do you deal with that? Yeah, and I think that's a problem tied to identity, that people want and badly crave some kind of identity to reassure them in life. Mm. And, but of course, identity is largely a made-up construct because we're all constantly changing all the time. Always. And so it's a dangerous business to get too sucked into that. And it's important to remember that a person's words or opinions at any one time is not necessarily who that person really is. And But of course, if you become progressively more invested into that to the point that those words, those opinions shape the way you react to every event in life, well, then they do become kind of who you are. And whatever you're... That's why, to me, I'm more interested in what people do than what people... than what ideas people say they embrace. Yeah, you know, it's like if somebody belongs to a particular religion. That doesn't tell me anything about them, no. because the reality is that there's a way to be a complete dick about being a member of that religion. There's a way to be a sweet and wonderful human being who's kind of strangers. As a result of so somebody telling me they are Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or something, it doesn't mean anything. Yes. You know, it's like okay, great. That tells me the starting point, but. But what does that really mean? Because in each one of those groups, there are people whose experience of that worldview has made them significantly nicer human beings and significantly worse human beings. Well, that's, you know, that there, there's, there's in America alone, there's 80,000 sects of Christianity, um, exactly. you know, and the, the, the Methodists will tell you what's wrong with the Baptists down the street. And then the Baptists will tell you what's wrong with the second Baptists. And of course, and but all of them will use one word, and the, again, back to the slipperiness of these words, Christianity, as the placeholder for "see, I'm a good person." Exactly, absolutely, and vice versa. Somebody will hear Christianity. That means you suck, and it's like, yes, that doesn't mean anything, man. It can mean anything about that person. It can be, you know, like recently I was talking to somebody who was clearly very Christian. And they were like, I'm not sure, you know, that may not be your cup of tea kind of thing. And I was seeing the way they meant Christianity, the way they approach it. And it was totally lovable. It was like, what do I care? You know, you attribute to Jesus, somebody, that's not my thing, but who cares? You know, it clearly helps you become a nicer human being. It clearly helps you behave in ways that are really sweet and kind to other people. Yeah. No problem. Why? Because you call it something that I don't, that's, I'm going to have a problem with it. Who cares? You know, right. the end result, great. you're doing something, go with it. If that's what helps you, use it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just, you always have to be careful, though, having that conversation, or at least I find I be care- have to be careful, because what 
seems kind of on the surface harmless uh uh and really does on the outward you know make them love thy neighbor and 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 do these yeah. prosperous actions i always kind of have a back in the back of my mind and this is because i escaped a lot of these views as a, from a kid you know and um right. is i i always kind of wonder the motivation you know they're being nice and they are they're not hurting anybody but are they doing it because of heaven or are they doing it because they love humans yeah. uh, there's a point where i don't care okay. it's kind of like so, as long as you get the job done so uh, so another kind of kantian utilitarian view on on the the outcome not the the the, the yeah. meaning behind it yeah i mean maybe that's not what i find ideal that you're sure. nice because you of your sky daddy and that's what makes you be nice <laughs> yeah. but you're be you being a dick to people man yeah. you know it's yeah. like oh if that's what it takes to make you nicer man, you know it's not the best motivation but it still leads to a good place well would you rather have so i guess kind of you know this is i don't know the answer to this i always struggle with this kind of question would you rather have a like an an a dishonest good person or an honest asshole yeah, and I think there's a problem there because sometimes, uh, sometimes the whole uh, like there are a lot of people who use honesty as um, as a justification for their just being an asshole. You know, uh, it's kind of like I'm just being honest. I'm just keeping it real. No, you're being a dick. That's a different thing. Is you're taking one particular view that may be partially true and not even completely, and you run with it because for whatever reason, but it makes you feel good or it, that's what you believe or that's a thing, but you hide it behind the, uh, I'm just telling the truth. It's like, yeah, first, so takes a lot of uh, arrogance to assume that your partial view of the universe is that and, and, thereby, and, thereby, and thereby being honest. Isn't that every, so, isn't that every uh, sorry, is, I, isn't that every black or all lives matter counter protester and every bootlicker out there right now holding that exact view? Yeah, I find it like, man, just, yeah, yeah it's tricky, man. I find it very, I've known a lot of people like that who have this, uh, I'm just, I value honesty. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. dude, you're pushing a particular agenda, mm -hmm. claiming that that's the truth, and then putting a sometimes fairly hateful agenda forward in loud terms makes you honest? No, it doesn't, man, at all. No. That's not what it is. Yeah, so I find that honesty, if anything, honesty threads very carefully. Right. Honesty is delicate. Because he realizes that reality is a little more complicated than we think, sure. that the truth has facets. So you can be very blunt about things, but I think to me, kindness needs to go hand in hand with honesty. Right. Otherwise, I begin to question whether that's honesty. Because well, the way I see it is honesty needs to be humble because you need to understand that your the way you are interpreting things may not be the only way to interpret. Yeah. So your honesty can be tempered with humility and if it's humble it also need to be tempered with kindness because ultimately that's what matters right i've been more than I've, anything. I've been playing with the idea you know it's it's sam harris's approach of radical honesty to which mm -hmm. you should always strive to tell the truth in every situation um even about some feelings you know mm -hmm. if if you like the 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 
the the perfect example in which is I struggle. Your your sure. wife your wife or your girlfriend says, "How do I look in this dress?" Sure. And you may think that dress looks like garbage on that person. Sure. Do you tell the truth and hurt their feelings, or do you say, "Oh, it looks fine," or "Oh, if you love it, get you know." that something that small where do where would you naturally find you going in something like that i think there's a way to say what you think without being a dick you know there's a way a uh i would ask a question first what do you like about it what's your thing because um what's the because uh personally i like you better in these and these and these um this does not seem to be my thing. I don't feel like I feel that, but, but maybe I tend to like this style better. What do you dig about this one? And mm. maybe you understand why they like it. And it's still not your thing. You still don't think it looks good, but you understand, okay, this is for whatever other reason or their aesthetics are a little too. And then you can still, you haven't lied. You still say this is not my thing, but you're not being a dick about it. Just being like, you look like garbage. It's like, that's <laughs> not on it. That's you being a dick. Okay? Yes. It's, Yes. Something else. Right. Okay. Very, very interesting distinction. I, I actually appreciate a lot that a lot more than kind of the, the black or white, you should never lie, or it's okay to as long as, you know, the harm isn't outdoing the, the harm you saved. Both right. of those still kind of feel a, a little morally ambiguous because I don't find, you know, if you were to take kind of a, a the, you know, the the beginning approach to uh you know for me like i don't i don't think there is one big moral arbiter i don't think morality does sure. fall from a sky daddy but i do recognize we have to everybody has to make a presupposition at the beginning mm-hmm. for something to then be measured to start from and so sure. i you know uh i'm kind of a fan of the idea of well-being being um the the place that we all if if we assume that all people care about everyone's well-being. You want to do as yeah. much good with as least harm, at least harm as possible. From there, now that may be subjective. That one does in fact care about well-being. But if we yeah. all agree that well-being is preferable to not well-being, yeah. then you can make any objective moral situation start from that right. point. And you know the other thing which I wish I would have been taught as a child was. Um, the veil of ignorance, mm-hmm. you, you know, um, starting John Rawls veil of ignorance is one of these things where, uh, you know, a decision is made, you know, it could be anything, uh, you know, from something as simple as, uh, you're, you're a child stealing a candy bar to, you know, uh, a, 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 a either the victim of, or a perpetrator of a rape. And if someone mm-hmm. were to say, well, the well-being of the raper is, you know, he is feeling good too. Well, that's where the veil of ignorance comes in and you say, okay, stand behind the veil. The situation is going to happen, but you don't know who you're going to be in the situation. Do sure. you, without knowing which side of the party are you going to be, are you still fine with that happening? You know, and, and right. I, it, it seems kind of straightforward yet no one ever really discusses morality from a framework like that yeah in that sense in fact i'm a huge fan of the idea that in all situations as much as humanly possible a solution 
to me is a less than ideal solution unless it makes everyone involved, if not happy, at least okay with the situation. Yeah. The way I see it is a solution that satisfies me at the price of screwing you over is not a solution. That's not something. And again, there are exceptions in life. You know, there's, uh, but but that's why like even like, you know, the art of war, Sun Tzu kind of emphasizes that a victory won without bloodshed tend to be 10 times more valuable than a victory won with bloodshed because the victory won without bloodshed, meaning that you have created something with what's the enemy in a way that the enemy is no longer an enemy. And then they don't have a reason five years down the road to rebel and come after you because you kicked their ass that one time. Yeah. And same thing in any kind of discussion with people. If you can have a discussion where the per- what could be an antagonistic discussion becomes a friendly discussion where everybody walk away feeling they gain something from it, that's mastery at a much higher level than just mm. yelling your worldview louder and kind of cowing them into accepting it, you know? Correct. Is, uh, so that idea of taking it is very much the opposite of uh, like unregulated capitalism. It's kind of like you know, there's the idea that me making ten million dollars at the price of screwing over twenty thousand people who have to live in poverty is not a solution, even if I'm benefiting from it. But but hey, that, they, they all can eat, right? Yeah, but that's <laughs> the thing. Is like, can we? To me, a real talent, real genius, real abilities, finding a way where you can get what you want, but without screwing over other people and actually, yes. if at all possible, making other people happy. Of course. That, to me, is like, then you are the man. No, it doesn't well, always work that way. Isn't that, isn't that pretty much stoicism? Yeah, I mean, I think every, you know, everybody, if you dig deep down in decent worldviews, they try to, I mean, even just Christian stuff about, you know, treating other people as you like to be treated or, you yeah. know, everybody has some kind of sense of that stuff across the globe because it's a pretty standard idea if you think about it long enough that it's that's probably the decent way to be. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. And so the real master is not necessarily agreeing with the principle, is applying it in a way that's successful. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, it's funny that that the that old uh, kind of proverb, uh, "treat others as you would want to be treated." Um, yeah. It, ever since I was a kid, I took it, and I get with the I get with the meaning, but the way it's worded almost yeah. leaves it a little one sided. It leaves it internal view outward. It sure everything about that sentence to me is what, and what I found out troubled me about it was. It starts with how you want to be treated and then prescribing others you, right? I think the mm-hmm. I think the flip and which which also kind of points to uh this God can't have been that smart if the Bible is the divine word of him because he would have made he would have made the one tiny correction. And I think it's better treat others as you would want them to treat you. And it turns right. it outward and you're putting the others around you before yourself and you're imagining them acting upon you and then you sending out that. Right. It mm-hmm. it flips. And I think it I think it actually uh, kind of fixes the the internal outward view uh, that mm-hmm. I find clogging in in a lot of modern capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, that's why it requires a lot of thinking outside the box to make it work, because yeah. otherwise, it's, uh, 
I'm not personally, I don't find any ideology. I don't find any religion, any political ideology, any economic system satisfactory in and of itself. No. I think there's elements there that are interesting that you can pick from, but it's kind of like recipes, you know, it's like ingredients for a recipe, sort of like each one of these things, whether a particular religion, a political ideology, an economic system are one ingredient. And you have the fans who scream, uh, chili pepper is the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't want to eat a plate of chili pepper. You know what I mean? It's like, that's nice in a certain amount within uh, how you cook a dish. Yes. It mixed with other things and in certain proportions. And no, chili pepper is always evil. It's like, no, it's not. A little bit, it tastes <laughs> really good. Yeah. For some people, well, more it tastes really good. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like, it's almost like that. And I find these like arguments, like I literally almost picture the arguments among different religious people from different religions, people from different political ideology, people supporting different economic systems. I almost picture them like ingredients in the kitchen screaming at each other, you know? It's all about tomatoes. Fuck you guys, pasta people. Pasta is evil. It's like, you know, it's almost like that. Only real pasta is with red sauce. Anybody making pasta with a white sauce, get out because, you know... to die it is it is a giant no true scotsman fallacy trickling all the way down right it's turtles all the way down yep yep yeah um okay well i know i know we're running short on your time and i do have a couple more little things for you um and you know just just more of kind of like a quick uh answer back and forth to pick on the top of your brain um dreams recently i i love your dreams the way your brain your brain work have you had any an, an interesting one dream recently you know usually my dreams are so damn disturbing they are just <laughs> so bad most of the time and uh, you know i the first time i connected the dots i realized i wrote a thing yesterday realizing a story about some great grandfather of mine i cannot wait to hear that by the way yeah who was in world war one part of this insane italian unit where they wouldn't even give them rifles they would give them daggers and hand grenades to storm the so yeah, I'm sure it's all some bloody stuff, and this that stuff seems to be stuck in my dreams. So many of my dreams is like my daughter will ask me, and you know my daughter is dead, but she's used to it. So it's like, oh, yeah. what do you think about last night? It's like, oh man, and so this person came in, and they were trying to kill me, and I had to shoot them, or I had to, and it's like, man, another one of those. Uh, yep, that's another one of those. No, like I had one. Uh, there was one that was hilarious. I dreamt. Uh, I dreamt that there was this dog of mine that I was in a boat and the dog jumped into the sea and was swimming. And for some reason that I have no idea why, there's this word Findus that was the name of like some frozen product in Italy when I was growing up. Okay. And so somehow the dog's name was Captain Findus. And Captain Findus, despite lacking opposable time, managed to the amazing feat of just grabbing onto my dick and using it to pull himself back onto the boat. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Captain Finnus, no, don't do that. That's terrible. Oh. Get your slimy paws was, off my dick. <laughs> no, and I woke up and I was like, what the hell was that about? That was wow. Oh man, that's amazing. Um, so, uh, oh, really quickly, I wanted to say you, you had brought up something earlier and I just see this tab open on my screen. Um, you you had you had said something earlier and 
the I think Marcus Aurelius had the perfect quote for it, and it was, "Accept uh, the things to which fate binds you, and love the people with whom fate brings you together, but do so with all yeah. your heart." I like it. I like it. There's some really good stuff in Stoicism for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so another thing I hear you talk about a lot is is music, and the other half of my show, you know, like like last episode, I just I had a, a bass player friend of mine from Alaska who's t- played all over the world, lives in Nashville now. Um, what music is a big part? I hear you talk about it a lot. You know, rides in the car with your daughter and all that stuff. Um, yeah. c- kind of d- just p- play a little game with what what it does for you psychologically is it is it something that helps you slip away is it a a working tool can you can you be creative and have music on does it need to be you know kind of how do you play with it yeah for creativity i find that um mainly instrumental stuff because words tend to distract me otherwise i start listening to the words Uh, there's um, like my brain start going there too much so very emotionally intense intru- instrumental stuff I can play it when I write and when I create something and it's super useful because it touches some emotional chords so it puts me rather than in a I'm gonna write something now it's like I'm moved by something I'm feeling and so I'm kind of like spilling blood on the page more in a way that's more real and really intense um, but it has to be the right kind of music. Like one thing that I use, it's funny because I don't really listen to it other than when I write oh. or in, I listen to this one piece, a classical piece, which is funny because I don't really listen to much classical music, but I listen to this song called uh, Adagio by Albinoni. Hmm. And it's this very powerful, intense thing that just, uh, I wrote, chapter so i wrote books listening to that because it's so emotionally intense and i would just play it on a loop for hours on end really and um, and and you know i like finding scenes that are along those lines where yeah. they there are those songs that just touch your soul and they just make you make you put more out there make you express more make you a lot of stuff that you feel that may be a little more buried comes to light when you listen to the yes. things. Uh, oh, some, something yeah. that struck a chord with me early on that made me go, you know, this Daniel, this, I mean, this is me eight years ago, you know, uh, discovering yeah. you and going, you know, I bet it'd be cool one day if the, me and this Daniele guy had a conversation because I just found so many things striking. And one of them was uh, on your podcast. One, I love how you transition elements of your show with music you know you have these breaks on drunken taoist and uh you use the ecstasy of gold that song mm-hmm. oh yeah that, that is that one. me too that that one for me is so i found that song when i was 13 years old um metallica mm-hmm. actually used it as the opening song for a lot of their concerts back in the mid to late 90s early 2000s and uh they would do kind of their own metallica sized version yeah. um yeah. uh one of those fascinating ones that does kind of it just has the perfect capturing of softness to intense intense emotional almost being distraught and you know brings you to this point um fascinating and it's just it's cool to you know find it kind of transversing and and other people feeling the same music's powerful that way Yes, Savannah, my girlfriend, used it as an entrance song for a couple of her fights. Yeah. In MMA. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, oh, speaking of which, uh, have you had much 
doing jujitsu lately? I know it's been a tough time with uh, the quarantine. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of hard, of course. Can't really do a whole lot of that. But um, do you and Savannah? I mean, I got to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. We And she became a really good grappler. So now it's now I have to go 100. Before I could afford to go 80%. Now <laughs> they are like really intense competitive sessions where I have to go 110 to to do well because she's because um, she's good she's strong she's her technique has improved so it's uh, it gets pretty intense but i need to get ma- i'm uh, i think we're gonna get sponsored by a mat company so we're gonna have mats in the garage soon which is Excellent. badly needed because i mean here we are on uh, you're not on video but i'm showing you yes. in video the mat the rag burns from rolling on the <sighs> ground on the carpet it sucks oh yeah uh, yeah, you know, shout out to to Ben Charles for for hooking us up. Um, such a good guy. I'm actually going over to his house after this, and we're going to watch UFC tonight um, and bar- barbecue some chicken and make some salad. Um, but he's been he's been getting on me for a while now. I was a wrestler back in middle school and early high school before I got too tall and had to play basketball. I'm I'm six foot eight, so yeah, I that would yeah that would change <laughs> if you don't play basketball there's some, something evil like play yeah 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 you know um and so but he's been he's been getting on me a lot saying hey man you're coming over i have mats in my basement like come uh-huh. come roll with me uh you know i've always been intrigued by grappling in itself you know as a as a young uh-huh. wrestler so so i think that's uh one of those uh things that i'm gonna now, I, as I get a little older and I find it less appealing to run and really weight yeah, lift yeah. and go to the gym, jujitsu seems like that next kind of logical move. And wrestling is such a good base. I mean, it's like yeah. the first few months you're going to get tapped nonstop because you don't know the specific submissions. But once you start getting the hang of it, your wrestling background will come in in a way that will just demolish most people who don't have a wrestling background. Well, well uh, he, he's told me the long legs and the long arms are super, super helpful to start with, having a really long arm. But he said it also yeah. it kind of leaves you open for a lot of the leg yeah. lock games. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean, initially, in fact, it's funny, like when people are really good wrestlers, I hope to roll with them the first few months they are around because eventually, you know, they look at me like, you are amazing. And I'm like, man, you are one year away from me never tapping you again. Because <laughs> once you do a couple of things, yeah. your balance on that, your understanding, you know, wrestlers are just superior in every way. In that game is just so good. Yeah, yeah, so, just just knowing knowing, you know, the the, the squash press pressure, you know, that yeah. amazing. There's something amazing about wrestling is a great activity. Is um <sighs> yeah, and they are I mean, well, every wrestler I roll with, they're tough as hell. Don't you don't amazing. you just kind of find it though it's almost more of just actually grabbing another human being and wrestling i mean r- wrestling not as a pejorative like the the actual sport but literally wrestling like just yeah. two people locking almost in an embrace but one that couldn't in death and that seems cathartic it it and it makes more sense in terms of the design of the human body. It kind of makes more sense. Like punching, the human hand is really not very well designed for yeah. punching. So it's like a lot of uh, grabbing, throwing things. It's uh, kind of more natural. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our elbows seem like pretty good weapons, though. Yeah. Elbows, knees, those are perfect. Yeah. Headbutts, those are perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Punch, less so. 
Right, right. Um, wow, interesting. Yeah, so I, I hope to I hope to get a little more experience and and slowly transition that world. Um, you know, it's it's always been intriguing. I've been a UFC fan forever, and and uh, you know, I watch all of like you know the Metamoris and uh, uh, Abu Dhabi's, and and you know, I I I, I enjoy watching jujitsu competition because it it is just kind of the it, it's almost fun to see what people do when their hands are taken away and they can't right. punch, you know? Yep. Uh, and so I've always enjoyed watching it. And now I think I'm finally working up the nerves and my ego death to uh, go in there and get strangled about 40,000 times. <laughs> no, it's fun, man. I love rolling. In fact, it's one of the things of the pandemic that I miss the most. Awesome. Um. Hey, really quickly, I I always in the the podcast. Uh, I I love nonsense poetry. Um. It is so fun to read. Just just weird where people's brains can go. And so I'm I'm a part of a few poetry uh, blogs online. And and uh, it's they're not like published poets. It's just random poetry. But before I read them, um, give me a, a Ikkyo Sojun. Um, quote something that he said or uh, something from him because he's so fascinating sure. and I want people to go and listen to History on Fire. It's on Luminary. Go check it out. Subscribe to it. You'll. It is the best damn history podcast out there. So go do it. And for people who just want to try and don't want to go behind any paywall, no matter how cheap it is currently, there's a bunch of episodes are still on iTunes and stuff like. Oh, sure. You have like tens of hours that are free so you can check that out and once if you decide that you have a strange addiction to weird italian accents then you can always move to the pay version but there's plenty of free stuff out there well, brian's brian Redband said it best in fact it was on the very first appearance you made on rogan he said your voice is like listening to cursive yeah, I remember him saying that. Yes, and, and <laughs> that's fun. I've thought about that. If anybody asks, Huey has an accent. What's it sound like? It's well, it sounds like listening to cursive. It's that thing has stuck with me for so long. <laughs> it's funny. I was we were watching a Bruce a documentary about Bruce Lee yesterday. Oh yeah, and you know you hear the audio of Bruce Lee on voice, and uh, I was like, oh man, I forgot that he had a fairly thick accent, and. Uh, and at one point, so I turned and I go like, so Bruce Lee or me, uh, who has a thicker accent? And uh, like, are we about the same? And uh, someone was just laughing at me. I was like, yeah, you wish. Well, uh, like, no, he's way milder than yours. So I was like, oh, shit, seriously? Because that's pretty heavy. <laughs> well, didn't you say you kind of notoriously ha don't have a good ear for the act? Like, you can't tell yeah, that terrible. you have I'm one? Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can. I, when I listen to myself on... If I listen to a recording of myself, yes, I can hear the eyes. But as I'm talking, no. I think I, uh, I, I could blend in in the middle of Kansas, no problem. That's <laughs> my imagination. But, uh, no. uh, human, the human mind is so fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, but okay, EQ. So yeah. a great EQ line is, uh, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. Throw me into hell and I'll. F oh, that's yes. That is that. That actually is the perfect encompassing of him. Um, the story about him on the lake was fascinating. Um, yep. So, so that was another one that really made me go, "Oh, the power of a man who who looks inside." You know. Uh, and yep. another Marcus Aurelius quote was, um, oh, "Where did that one go?" Um, oh, I did. Uh, Oh yeah, the happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. 
Mm-hmm. That's very true. Okay, so ending with some nonsense poetry. Um, this first one is great. Um, very short. Here it goes. Jumping frogs on a bog lily pad. The best clod hoppers I ever had. You do not get it, but you are not me. Loony and lively as the coconut tree. Cauliflower marigolds dancing in bunches. Doing their exercises, struggling with crunches. Cinnamon toadstools eaten by cats. Nonsensical verse, how terrific is that? <laughs> the, eaten by cats. Uh, nice yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that was written by Karen Krutzinger. Uh, always like to mm-hmm. shout out the people who write these. Yeah, the, 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 the play on the words is, is so fascinating how you can, like, you know, we're talking earlier, the trickiness of language. You can just butt words that should never fit next to each other in a sentence, and all of a sudden they make beautiful poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. And the last one, uh, which is mm-hmm. funny because I picked these out a few days ago, and uh, it's, it is kind of apropos on how our conversation turned into a lot about words. This is, this is mm-hmm. the second one called Words. Words have become such naughty little devils, turning my thoughts inside out and upside down in order to have their own way. Using sentences as jump ropes while snickering at verbs. Who thinks it's attractive to dance around like nonsensical cheerleaders? Sometimes sometimes it gets very maniacal in here, but I find it extremely hard to resist this side of art. Yeah. That's uh, hilarious, man. I know. I know. Well, thank you so much. I won't take up more of your time. Uh, go enjoy the rest of your Saturday, Daniele. This has been such a pleasure uh, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, amazing. Thank you. You know, and, and then there is one more quote I want to leave with. Um, this is something I've kind of always lived by, uh, and it is nail on the head or hammer on the nail of the head for this conversation is uh, you can tell. You can tell a lot by the man who and how he treats those who can do nothing for him. And so in, in this, uh, just the fact that you've taken your time and come on here uh, and not having, you know, one of these mutually assured helping things just makes me realize that the, the you I've thought I've heard for almost a decade is in fact the you that I thought you were. So thank you, sir. And thanks so much. That's really, really sweet. Which one is that quote? That's a great quote. Uh, I honestly, at this point, I could look it up real fast. I do not remember who said it, but it is, uh, yeah. I dig it. You can tell tell a lot by a man, by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. So. A lot. Oh, it's, 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 it's David Smalley. David, remind me one second. Da- oh, so yeah, he's 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 actually he's a podcaster. Uh, he holds, or I guess they just changed the name of his thing. But he's an author. He wrote, uh, 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 oh God, I can't. Man, I have so many things in my head. Um, but no, he, he he's an author. He's a podcaster. His podcast was called Dogma Debate. It was uh, uh basically it's it's, well, it's 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 a religious conversation show. Um, 
but he he uh now it's just called the david c smalley show um he is uh oh, he's, he's a- i'm looking it up yeah it looks like it's ever like it's attributed to everyone on earth pretty much it's one of the sports that's ah. like iconic and has been attributed now i'm gonna do some digging on uh if there's a consensus regarding the origin because yeah, it seems to be a real popular it's a cool one i dig it well thank you so much man. yes sir much appreciated. enjoy ufc today say hi to ben and, I will. Uh, Let's we'll... talk soon. Perfect. Have a great one. Take All care. Right. Thank you, bye, Daniel. Bye. Wow. Isn't that amazing, everybody? Whew. Daniele Bolelli, the savage philosopher, the middle finger of the gods, host of Drunken Taoist podcast, History on Fire, mixed martial artist, teacher, philosopher. Uh, fantastic human being that I'm sitting here in goosebumps. I'm sweating. I've been sweating this entire podcast. I've been barely able to catch my breath. The anxiety that I started with, uh, you know, at two o'clock this afternoon, one thirty this afternoon, uh, has not left yet. Uh, I did push-ups. I did sit-ups. I made, uh, as much to get the anxiety out. I had a beer, uh, smoked a little weed and all of it is still persisting i can't believe i just had that conversation that was i hope you guys enjoyed that as much as i did Danielli is such a fantastic guy a fantastic thinker um wow go check out his podcasts uh follow him on instagram facebook twitter all that stuff <sighs> wow well that's over i did it i i did it guys holy shit um, this has been a journey through time and stuff. You guys have been amazing. And until next time, my sweet friends, uh, drive like you know each other. <laughs>